Welcome to The Podcast, a monthly podcast from the Princeton Alumni Weekly. I'm Brett Tomlinson. When President Eisenhower signed the National Aeronautics and Space Act in 1958, Charles Pete Conrad, class of 1953, was training as a naval test pilot. Eleven years later, he would become the third person to walk on the moon. And is that a good-looking flight, then, Lim? You're coming into the picture now, Pete. Okay. Okay, got the old camera running. Okay. November 19th marks the 50th anniversary of Conrad's moonwalk with Alan Bean, part of the Apollo 12 mission. And to mark the occasion, we're speaking with Jordan Bim, a postdoc in Princeton's sociology department and a historian of science. He's written about early American space medicine in his PhD dissertation at York University in Toronto. And his current project is called Putting Mars in a Jar, the Military Origin of Astrobiology. Jordan, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Brett. Um, now, Pete Conrad has a very special place in Princeton history as the university's first astronaut. Um, but he also has a significant place in NASA history. So he flew on four missions uh, including a 28-day mission on Skylab. What was his background before entering the astronaut program? Well, his, uh, you know, he was born in Philadelphia and came to Princeton in 1949, graduated in 1953, and then headed into the Navy. He was actually, uh, when he was at Princeton, he was on a ROTC Navy scholarship, so that enabled him to be commissioned as an ensign when he graduated in 1953. So, um, yeah, his background was really as a, um, an aeronautical engineer. That was his, the degree that he earned at Princeton, and then as a naval test pilot and a fighter pilot as well. And what about becoming an astronaut in, in those early days? What was the selection process like? Uh, I, I gather Conrad was a candidate for the Mercury program and, and didn't make the cut, but, but later joined uh, in the, the sort of second group. Exactly. So... If any of the listeners out there have seen um, the movie adaptation of Tom Wolfe's famous book, The Right Stuff, they'll remember the medical testing scenes. Uh, those took place at the Lovelace Clinic in uh, early 1959, and, and that was to winnow a group of about 32 uh, military test pilots down to the Mercury 7. And Conrad was part of that group of 32 candidates that was invited to the Lovelace Clinic in New Mexico. But he famously was not not selected for the Mercury 7. And as the story goes, uh, it was the horribly invasive uh, medical tests that just turned him off. And he, he just really didn't want to continue with the, with the selection uh, process. But he, he scored high marks. And it was actually um, Al, Al Shepard, one of the uh, Mercury 7 and the first American in space, who who encouraged Conrad to reapply for the second selection, which occurred in 1962. And it should be noted as well that there was uh, another very famous astronaut who was also not selected for the Mercury 7. That was James Lovell, who was the commander of Apollo 13 and also flew to the moon on Apollo 8 as well. So Conrad was in good company and not getting, not getting selected. What, what was the thinking in the selection process back then? I mean, what, what was the philosophy on what it would take to be a good astronaut? 
Well, that's exactly the the topic that I've spent a lot of time researching in my, my PhD. So um, what's really interesting is that the field of space medicine, which is the field that surrounds uh, the selection and protection of astronauts, uh, is a lot older than NASA. It goes back to the end of World War II. And when NASA was created, they definitely adopted a lot of this military science that had been done. But they also made a decision, um, and it was an executive decision coming from the White House itself, which was that they would limit their search to active duty military test pilots with degrees in engineering who had 1,500 hours in jet-powered aircraft. So that limited the number of people that they were looking for significantly and sort of uh, honed in on this sort of type of person that already pre-existed. So those are like white male uh, military uh, trained pilots. And, you know, uh, and they also need to have a degree in engineering. So Conrad, with his um, his aeronautical engineering degree from Princeton and his um, his training with the Navy uh, fit the bill perfectly uh, at that at that time. So what they were looking for within that group, though, were uh, people who were brave people, obviously, <laughs> people who were psychologically stable, who wouldn't um, buckle under pressure, uh, who wouldn't try and hot dog it too much up there in space. Um, so they wanted someone who who was assertive and could take control and act as a as a backup system to the automatic spacecraft systems. But they also wanted someone who would follow orders. They didn't want anyone to kind of go rogue up there in space. They, they wanted to make sure that that person could be controlled by ground controllers. So Conrad joins the second group of astronauts in, in 1962. He has experience flying. He's mechanically inclined. He has this engineering degree. But he's also something of a character. I, I mean, the, the stories about him make him seem like someone who kind of spoke his mind. Uh, do you get a sense of how he was viewed by his peers and, and, and by the public as as uh, as he began to be known uh, through his his exploits as an astronaut? That's a great question, and it kind of it links up to the story of his time here at Princeton. And by all accounts, he, he was a constant comedian, uh, just someone who was really funny to be around who had sort of a joke-a-minute, raucous um, attitude, a uh, real joie de vivre. And, you know, when I was doing some research into Conrad's time here at Princeton over uh, at the Mud Library, I had one archivist there sum up Pete Conrad to me as a, um, a dismal student, but an excellent astronaut. So when he graduated in 1953 uh, from Princeton, he finished second last in his class. But then when he went to train as a naval pilot down in Pensacola in Florida, he quickly earned uh, a reputation for just excellence behind uh, the controls in the cockpit. And that goes back to his time at Princeton, where by his own admission, he spent more time flying light planes than he did studying for exams. He, he was known as someone who was dedicated to the things that he loved. He had the ability to achieve excellence in the areas that he really was was passionate about and was very a very driven individual. But the overarching thing about Pete Conrad is his sense of humor. That was sort of what made him distinct amongst, amongst the other astronaut candidates um, that were selected in 1962. In the history of space exploration, it seems like Apollo 12 is sort of a forgotten mission, kind of sandwiched between the first moon landing with Apollo 11 and the heroic problem-solving of Apollo 13, immortalized in the the, uh, Ron Howard uh, film of of 1995. Um, Was Apollo 12 meaningful at the time to to sort of demonstrate that the moon landing was not just a a one-time thing? 
Definitely was. And it, it has become a bit of a forgotten mission. You know, this year is the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11, but it's also the 50th anniversary of Apollo 12, the other moon landing to occur in 1969, about four months after Apollo 11 landed. Um, yeah, it, it was it was super important. Apollo 11's main mission was just to land on the moon. And, you know, famously, Neil Armstrong had to alter the landing site at the last moment because he encountered craters and, and boulders where they thought it would be a good place to land. Pete Conrad's mission was to achieve precision landing, to show that you could select a site on the moon and have a pilot take the LEM down and, and land very, very close to that objective. So the objective for Apollo 12 was actually a probe that NASA had sent to the moon uh, two years earlier called Surveyor 3. And it landed in a part of the moon called the Ocean of Storms. So Conrad's job was to set the LEM down close enough that they could, they could moonwalk over and check out Surveyor 3. And he did that. Boys, you'll never believe it. That's what I see sitting on the side of the crater. The old surveyor, huh? The old surveyor, yes, sir. <laughs> Does that look neat? It can't be any further than 600 feet from here. How about that? It was a very, very short moonwalk over to the probe, and they were able to recover pieces of that probe and return them to Earth after they'd been on the moon for a few years. You know, the other thing about um, Apollo 12 that makes it uh, remarkable was that they survived a lightning strike during launch, and that's uh, sort of become this famous episode in the lore of space enthusiasts. The Saturn V rocket is is barely off the launch pad. They're launching in a storm, which they don't think is going to be a big deal. And then all of a sudden, the electrics in the command module just, just drop out. And uh, they didn't know what had happened. They suspected they'd been hit by lightning, but they didn't know for sure at that time. And it came down to um, a very specific switch, uh, SEC to AUX, that Albine had to throw to basically reboot the power in the, in the command module. And the mission could continue then uh, just fine. But it was a very, very troubling moment there at the very beginning uh, of that mission. And the other things that are notable about Apollo 12 is that it was an all-Navy crew. So Albine and uh, Dick Gordon, who was um, also uh, on uh, Gemini 11 with, um, with, with Pete Conrad, they were an all-Navy crew. And they were also really good friends. And that wasn't the case for every Apollo crew um, so it, it's sort of um, like a very wholesome mission in that sense. And, and a little footnote, uh, Conrad took some Princeton flags up with him, uh, which I gather you had a chance to see over the summer when you were uh, preparing for a lecture on the Apollo program. I did. And th these are sort of a fascinating little piece of Princeton uh, memorabilia. And they're currently in the MUD collection, um, at the MUD library and the memorabilia collection. I had the chance to go over and examine them. And I found out that there's a very interesting story behind these flags that Conrad took with him to the moon. So basically, it all started back on, on Conrad's Gemini 5 flight, his very first space flight during the Gemini program, which preceded the Apollo program. And he had gotten in contact with uh, an administrator at Princeton, um, Frederick Fox, who many of your readers will know as Mr. Princeton and a beloved figure in, uh, in Princeton lore. Um, and Conrad asked if, if there was a small flag that he could take along on his, on his flight, which was going to stay in orbit for uh, five or six days. And Fox looked around. He could not find a small Princeton flag. He could only find ones that were huge and too big to, to take on, on the flight. So uh, they settled for a small Princeton banner that was procured from the university store. 
Then, uh, in the lead up to Apollo 12, uh, Conrad got back in touch with Fox again, looking for a small Princeton flag, and Fox again could not locate one at the university store. So, so Fox got creative and walked from his office, uh, NASA Hall, down to Witherspoon Street to um, a business that used to exist there called the Fabric Center, and he purchased uh, a length of their finest silk and then had another Princeton alum uh, hand paint the crest and the motto onto the white silk. And then his wife, Hannah Fox, stepped in and she cut and hemmed the flags. And then the flags were sent directly to Cape Canaveral where they were vacuum sealed inside uh, Pete Conrad's uh, pilot's personal preference kit, which was essentially a small bag that they could bring whatever they liked in, in, in there. And uh, he took that bag to the moon uh, containing the flags. And then when the flags uh, made it back to Earth, Conrad presented them back to the university at a ceremony that was held at uh, the Colonial Club, the eating club where, where Conrad had been a member when he was a student here. And I just think it's so funny to think that these lengths of silk were taken from 25 Witherspoon Street, which is now the location of the of the restaurant La Mezzaluna, which is sort of fitting, uh, taken from Witherspoon Street uh, all the way to 40 Prospect Avenue by way of the moon. <laughs> <laughs> the lengths that alums will go to to uh, to serve Princeton. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I, I also mentioned um, Conrad's later uh, Skylab mission, 28 days uh, in space, which at the time was a, a record for human spaceflight duration and, and something that he was rather proud of. Um, after NASA, he had a, a career in the aerospace industry. He died relatively young in a, in a motorcycle accident in, in 1999. What, what do you see as, as Pete Conrad's uh, legacy in the space program? His his legacy is is the third man on the moon, uh, third third human being to set foot on a, a another celestial object. Um, Apollo eleven was successful, but there were so many unknowns still at that point, and the replication of something like that was crucial. You needed to show that you could do it more than one time, um, or else it, it could be explained as a fluke or a one-off or something like that. He really demonstrated competency, and he demonstrated precision flying, uh, landing that LEM so close to Surveyor 3. And that speaks to the overall picture that we have of Pete Conrad as an excellent pilot. And um, I think also a part of his legacy, is, is, as I mentioned before, is a sense of humor. And you get that from the, the first words that he spoke on the lunar surface, which kind of uh, poked fun at Neil Armstrong's uh, one small step gravitas. So Conrad famously said, whoopee, that may have been a small one for Neil, but it was a long one for me, <laughs> which was uh, a little bit of a reference, I think, to, uh, to his own short stature. He was only five foot six. So the, the distance there from the bottom of the, the ladder to the foot of the limb was, was a, a bit longer for him. With the Apollo 11 anniversary over the summer, much attention has been paid to, to those early days of NASA, and, and you've done research on the space program even before that. Are, are there lessons from that era that could apply to future manned space travel? I think so. I mean, it was an era, it was an era characterized by the competition with the Soviet Union, and that was the the number one reason why we got the Apollo program and why humans have set foot on the moon now. In our present moment, we are sort of absent that that motivator, and we're in a transition point right now, similar to the way that. Um, the space program transitioned from sort of an obscure military operation in the 1950s to a huge national 
program when NASA was founded in 1958. Right now, we're at another juncture where we're sort of leaving behind those large national space agencies and transferring to the private space industry with um, Boeing and SpaceX, Blue Origin, companies like that really trying to demonstrate a human spaceflight competency. So we're at a transition period right now where we could learn a lot from uh, the boldness of the early space program. Um, I think right now people want to make sure that things work really, really well and are safe before they they put a human inside. And I think that's a, gr- a great idea. But at the same time, there is a bit of, um, I think, we're at a bit of a, a moment where we're unsure if we want to go all in on private space or if we want to keep doing the large national space agency. So something like the space launch system that NASA is developing right now may not end up being super useful if SpaceX sort of takes over the commercial crew program. Another topic that has been part of space exploration from the beginning uh, is one that's at the top of your research agenda right now, the, the uh, field of astrobiology. Uh, what role did the search for life play in the early space program? That's a really interesting question. Um, so astrobiology, for people who might not be familiar with the term, is the, the the study of hypothetical extraterrestrial life. So we haven't found any life in other worlds yet, but there's a lot of science being done on the potential for that life, what it might look like, where we might find it, how to look for it, how to identify it, that sort of thing. And listeners shouldn't be confused with SETI, which is the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. So when we're talking about astrobiology, we're not talking about people with uh, headphones on listening to radio telescopes. We're really talking about microbiologists uh, hunched over a bench looking uh, through a microscope at microbes. And that was, a, a, that was definitely something that, that was animating um, early uh, space exploration in the sense that like, if you look at the Apollo 11 mission and the Apollo 12 mission as well, those astronauts, when they returned from the moon, were quarantined for a period of weeks uh, because they didn't know if there, if there was some sort of life on the moon that could come back to Earth and, and infect the, the population. So obviously we now know there is no life on the moon, but we are still very hopeful that we might find life uh, on Mars, either present life or, or life in the uh, very ancient past when Mars was warmer and wetter, as well as now the moons of Jupiter and Saturn, uh, places like Enceladus uh, and, and Titan are looking like um, good, good uh, candidates for, for life uh, on other worlds. The period of time that I'm studying, though, predates NASA. Um, if you ask an astrobiologist today about the origin of their field, they'll likely tell you a story uh, about how Joshua Lederberg, who was a uh, Nobel-winning uh, molecular biologist, uh, lobbied NASA the very early days for funding for a program that he called exobiology, and that sort of began the field of, a- of astrobiology in the 1960s. But what I found out doing research on the very early military period of space development was that the U.S. Air Force actually had a program in what they called astrobiology running from about 1950 to the creation of NASA. And that, that sort of early military period has been has been forgotten from the field. And one of the most interesting things I found during that era was that they created these little tiny simulations of Mars that they called Mars jars. So if you can imagine like a little terrarium that you might build at home with cactuses or succulents inside. Uh, these were military officers building versions of that except for Mars. So instead of your plants, you put in um, very arid soil, you make the uh, atmosphere extremely thin, you make it very cold. And then what they were doing uh, in the Air Force was putting 
extreme uh, microbes from Earth that they thought could survive these extreme environments inside these Mars jars to see if any could survive. And what they found was that after a period of 100 days, they, that certain Earth microbes could survive in what they thought the harsh conditions of Mars were like. So that did create some hope for finding life on Mars. That still animates a lot of space exploration today, although mostly robotic probes that have been sent to Mars. A final question for you, and, and I know it's very hard to predict where space exploration is headed, but if you were to be given moonshot-type money, uh, what question or, or questions would you most want to explore? That's a, that's a great question. And I think the question I would want to explore is um, making space more democratic of a place. And right now we have seen the sort of the legacy of the military space program um, create um, a, a certain type of astronaut. I would like to see a more diverse uh, population of people exploring space. I would like to see um, people uh, people with disabilities, uh, LGBTQ people included in space missions that haven't been to space yet. Uh, I would like to see space sort of opened up for, for everybody and uh, to sort of make right on those proclamations that we have heard about making space for all mankind. Uh, I think so far it has been for a very specific type of person and a very specific type of mission. And I think that there's a lot of room to grow there. And if I was given moonshot money, uh, I would definitely try and open up space to all different kinds of people and to have all different types of experiences there, artists, poets, musicians, um, not just engineers, not just scientists, not just test pilots, uh, as brave and as competent and as heroic as they are, there is so much more to life than that. Space can offer a reflection of that that would be so valuable to everyone back here on Earth. Well, Jordan, thank you so much for joining me. This has been great to uh, speak about Pete Conrad and and some of uh, your work as well, and good luck with the remaining time in your uh, postdoc. Thank you very much. Hey, I just heard something. It hadn't hit the ground yet. It must have gone up 300 feet. Stop playing. It gets over. Well, maybe they'll extend it until four and a half hours up till I could stay out here all day. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. You can find us by searching for Princeton Alumni Weekly on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And transcripts of every podcast are available on our website, paw.princeton.edu. This episode was recorded at the Princeton Broadcast Studio with help from Daniel Kearns. The music is licensed from First Com Music. <laughs>